0: Again, I just want to say welcome. It's, it's good to be worshiping with you guys here this morning and to see your faces. I just want to quickly uh, jump back into where we were last week. Last week, we left the children of Israel right at the edge of the promised land. And it was a, a, a rough, rough day for them. They'd gone through so much. God had brought them through so many terrible, dangerous situations. He brings them right to the promised land. He sends in the spies. And the spies, see, they see a good report. But they also see a bad report as well. And so they see that the land was rich. It was, in a sense, flowing with milk and with honey. And yet at the same time, they saw the giants. They were too large and the cities were, they were too strong. And so they became scared. And they rejected the, the very idea that God would providentially come to their aid as he had time and time again. And we talked about the fact that people became big and God became small. And as a result of that, they faced a a serious loss. All of that generation that had the opportunity to enter into the land that was taken from them, now they would not be able to see the land. That was their choice and, in a sense, their punishment as well. So that's where we left them at. God said, you're going to wander until the last one of you dies. This generation won't see it. So 40 years past 39, a little bit, they, they pass, and here Deuteronomy picks up. and it, it covers a little bit of the final years, or the final time there, and they're wandering, but it picks up. And it's Moses, basically the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' final words to Israel. Chapters 1 through 3 give a, a summary of what took place, and they're at the end of their traveling, and they're wandering. They're on the east side of the Jordan. It covers that and then it goes into uh, 4 through 11 I think is uh, Moses' first speech and then there's some laws and some additional laws that are given and expounded on and then the final part of uh, Deuteronomy is again another speech of Moses given to the people there and there at the end of Deuteronomy, uh, spoiler alert, Moses dies. And so this is the book of Deuteronomy and we'll look at it this morning. Really the centerpiece of the book of Deuteronomy and the center point of the Torah and the center point of all of Jewish tradition and heritage and law is what we will look at today. And that's Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's called the Shema. It means to hear. So we'll look at that this morning in chapter 6. Uh, Moses, he's, he's speaking uh, then to this new generation of Israelites. He's encouraging them, and he's got some, some, a pep talk, in a sense, to give them. Hey, don't be like your parents. Don't, don't do what they did. And he gives them three challenges among several, but three that I want to point out this morning. We can't wring everything out of the text, but I want to draw your attention to three words this morning in the text, and they are, these, they are this. Hear, love, and teach. Moses gives three commands. If you're taking notes, hear, love, and teach. It's easy today. So I want to jump in uh, to to reading the text as we we read this text together. I want you to think about those. Look for those words. um, Hear, love, and teach. I also want you to just think as we read this passage that this is not the first time that the law or a summary of the law has been given to the children of Israel. As a matter of fact, they've heard these things before. Much of this they've heard before. They'd already received the Ten Commandments. Remember that first generation, they turned against it. They had their opportunity to enter into the promised land, and they rejected that. And so now Moses is coming to them and saying, now this this new generation, now listen up. Don't make the same mistakes that your parents made. He says, trust the Lord, listen to the Lord, love the Lord, and teach your children. With that in mind, with that summary, let's read together Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we'll begin in verse 1. It says this Now, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you. And that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be the frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Let's skip down to verse 20. And when, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God... Our God has commanded you. And then you will. Then you shall say to your son, "We were in Pharaoh's. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our very eyes. And He brought us out from there that He might bring us into the land and give us the land that He swore to give our fathers." And the Lord commanded us to do these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our, good, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? God, these are your words. This is what you commanded Moses to speak to the children of Israel, both for their benefit and now for ours today. So as we look at this text, again, we ask you to to guide us. Spirit, we pray that you, as your word is read, as we walk through it this morning, that you would cut us to the heart, that you'd grow us, that you'd challenge us. That as we walk out of this place this morning, we would be able to say, as in this passage, that what we experienced today was for our good. God, we ask these things, hoping that they will bring you glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. So the first of the three that we'll look at this morning is here, the word here. It's the Hebrew word Shema, and it means to listen, to heed. To respond, our Bibles simply say to hear, that we're to hear uh, what God has to say there in verse 4. But the meaning of the Hebrew word for hear is, is more than just to hear. It's more than just you having, what, I, I'm not a doctor, I don't know much about hearing, but it's more than just your eardrum and that little hammer working, it's, it's more than that. It actually has to do with listening and obeying. So listening and obeying, both hearing and obeying. So in Genesis 4, we read the account of Cain and Abel. And they both, they bring their sacrifice to God. God had instructed them that that they were to bring a sacrifice. And so they both bring that sacrifice to God. And and one was accepted and one was rejected. Cain's was rejected. God said, this is not what I've asked you for. This is not what you heard me say. He looks to Abel and he says, hey, you've, you've heard me. Not only did the sound waves go into your ears, but you also listened. You heeded what I was saying. So here's a great example of what it means to hear in the Bible. So when Moses stands before the people and he says, Hear, O Israel. He's saying, listen and obey. So my challenge for you this morning, as we hear the words of God this morning, as we read it, as you consider what you read this past week and what you'll read this coming week, I want to ask you this question. Are you the type of person that will approach the word of God only to listen, to hear, and not to obey? Or will you also obey? Will you read the scriptures this week? Will you commit to do that? I want to challenge you and invite you into that. That's what God's asking of us. He's not asking us just to know what he said and even be able to repeat it and to celebrate yourself because you memorized the scripture. He's not asking for that alone. Not only does he want us to know, not only does he want us to hear it, but he wants us to obey it, what is it that they're to hear? What is it that they're to obey? Well, verse four it says, "Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one." Verse five, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might." As, as I said a moment ago, this passage is actually referred to as the Shema. It's the it's the Jewish confession of faith. Matter matter of fact, most Jews who are who are devout and orthodox will will twice a day recite this. Twice a day they will recite this every day. This, this entire passage. It's the Shema. It's the heart of the law. Even Jesus celebrated and agreed with the Shema. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, he, he's quoted as quoting, as saying that the great commandment is the chief commandment. The Shema is the chief commandment. That we're to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our minds. But anyway... Uh, some translate this verse, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And uh, that's not what we see here. We, in, our, in our translation, the ESV, it says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The other, the other option is the Lord our God, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you see, the word used here, one, is not emphasizing the quantity. It's not emphasizing the number. It's actually emphasizing the unity of God, the completeness of God. As a matter of fact, when a, uh, a Jew or a Muslim would look and read this passage, when they would hear the Shema, they would oftentimes just look at that and say, this means one. And they would conclude there is no trinity. There is no, multi, there is no three parts of the Godhead. They would, they, that's what they would come away with. But what's actually taking place here is this is actually providing room and maybe even uh, confirming there as, as early as Deuteronomy 6 that God is a trinity. Because the, the three parts of the Trinity are in unity. And I've, you might think, well, this is maybe a bit of a stretch. Are you sure that it's talking about uh, the unity and not the number? Well, if you look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, uh, you can write that down in your notes. Uh, that passage there, that speaks of the husband and the wife, Adam and Eve becoming one flesh. One flesh. There's a unity between the two. Are they still two people? Yes, of course they are. There's a unity. It's difficult to, to 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 differentiate between which one, where one starts and the other stops. There's a unity between the two parties, one flesh. So proof of the Trinity here: that God is one. He is unified. And this also stands uh, out against, in contrast, against the Canaanites' gods, because the Canaanites were similar to the Egyptians in the sense that they believed in a multitude of gods. There was, there was a, they were very polytheistic and it was uh, very rare for a, a Canaanite to feel like they were in good standing with all of the gods that they were recognizing. And so they may, not, uh, they, they may not be a god. Uh, well, let me back up and say this. The Israelites were monotheistic. They believed that there was only true, truly one God. But then you had other religions around there that would, that would believe in, they were monodolatry, which would mean this. They believed that there were many gods, but they wouldn't worship them all. They would only worship a set amount, maybe only one. Or maybe they would worship a set amount. They believed in many, but they would only worship four, maybe five. But either way, in Canaan, one of the difficulties here was trying to make sure that you, all the gods that you recognized, that you were in good standing with them. Because those gods were not in good standing with each other. And so possibly if you considered yourself to be at war with this God, you might have been at peace with this one or vice versa. And This was the way of Canaan. Imagine how exhausting that would be to always make sure that you're on the right side, uh, always walking on eggshells around your gods and then not being unified. How exhausting. Imagine the relief of, of, of the Israelites being revealed that there is only one God. And they're only to worship him. And not only are they to worship this one God, but he is one. He is unified in his person. If you do what he says, you're in good shape. They had one God to worship, one God to serve. So they're to hear him. They're to listen to this one God. What were they to obey? What were they to know about him? What were they to do? The commandment there is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Again, this is the greatest command. Remember, because on it, on this one command, to love the Lord your God with with all of your being, on that one command hangs all of the commandments that God has given to us. Even Jesus said that on on these two commands, to love God with all your heart, soul, and might, and to love your neighbor as yourself, those two commands, Jesus said, they hold up all of the law and all of the prophets. So we're to love the Lord our God what does that look like? Let's notice this word love. It's the Hebrew word for ahav. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, and I just threw that out there for you. It looks like it's actually spelled Ahab. I was curious if that was actually his name, love. Um, but it, it means to desire for, to breathe after, to long for. This verb is used oftentimes in a romantic and a sensual sense. And quite frankly, I think God is saying here that we're to love the Lord. Our God, love the Lord. We're to long for him and him alone. He's, in a sense, he's saying, I want to be the only one in your life. It's the Lord, Lord our God. He is one. He wants us to love him, to long for him and him alone. Uh, single guys, you could, this is maybe what God is saying to translate for you. He's saying, I better be the only duck in your pond. You're welcome to use that. That, might, that may help you out, uh, but maybe not. Um, But God is saying, I want to be alone, the one that you long for. I alone want to be the one that you desire and that you are devoted to. That's what God's after. God's after pure devotion, pure motivation for obedience. I say pure because of the comprehensiveness of this command. If you look here, He says, All your heart, all your soul, And all your might. In those days, the the heart was thought of as the seat of the intellect. It was your rational and logical side, your heart. Oftentimes we think of the heart being your to follow your heart, and that's your emotions, but it's not that. It's your intellect. God is saying, I want you to love me with your mind. I want want you to love me with all of your mind, all of your rational abilities and logical faculties. I want you to love me with with all that. And then he says, I want you to love me with all your soul. That referred more to the will and to the feelings, the emotions. He said, I want you to love me with the the unseen part of you too, the other part of you. I want you to love me with all of that. He goes on to say strength with all your might. This is speaking of the physical side of your body, the, the physical side of you. God's addressing all of your areas. And he's saying all-encompassing, comprehensive. I want you to be devoted to me in every area, with every fiber of your being. Every fiber of your being. The point is clear. God expects Israel to love him with their substance and with their expression. You see, true obedience on part of the Israelites would be demonstrated in the fact that they loved God. Obedience to God would demonstrate the fact that they loved God. And Jesus actually offered us a similar command in the New Testament, didn't he? John 14, 21, he says, Whoever whoever has my commandments and keeps them, has them, hears them, keeps them, right? That's That's that whole Shema. Whoever has them and keeps them, he it is who loves me, Jesus said. The one who obeys, the one who truly hears, that's the one who loves me. It goes on to say that he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So if you love God, listen, you will keep his commandments. By the way, there's a, it's not circular reasoning, but it is circular here. When we hear, when we truly meditate and chew and obey God's laws, when we dissect them, it, 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 it causes love to grow in our hearts. And as that love and our hearts begins to grow and expand into all areas of our lives, guess what It begins to happen? We begin to meditate more. We begin to hear more. We obey more. It just continues to build on one another. We love the Lord our God, and when we obey, we demonstrate our love. And what's interesting is that when we love God with every part of our being, it shows in every part of our life. Think about that. When you love God, With every part of your being, your heart, your soul, your might. When you do that, it shows in every part of your life. So the opposite is also true. When we don't love God with every part of our being, again, it shows in every part of our life. It's almost as if you're visiting somebody at the the hospital and as they walk down the hallway, you, you holler out to them and you say, hey, you're covered in the back, but you're not in the. Or you're covered in the front, but not in the back. You might want to pull that closed, right? Maybe it's grandma walking down the hallway, and you let her know, "Hey, you, you're, something's wrong." Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're being something. You're being uh, meant, it's, You've been made aware that you've been exposed. When you don't love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your might, that it shows in your life. Is that you? As I think about that this morning, I'm, I'm challenged by that. One of the big things that Moses continually begin, uh, beats in this book, in, in chapter 4, and chapter 5, and chapter 6, and throughout, is this idea of teaching the next generation, teaching our children how to love God, how to obey God, and how to teach their children. That's a big deal. That's a big focus for this book. Moses is saying, that's how we're going to stop. That's how we're not going to re-repeat what's taking place there at the foot of the Jordan, at the banks of the Jordan. We're going to teach our children to love God. We're going to teach our children to hear God. We're going to teach our children to teach their children. With that in mind, consider this. What are you teaching your children? As you consider this, loving God with every part of your being, that being clear to those around you, and the, and, and the opposite to be true as well, what are you teaching your children in that? Maybe it's not your children, maybe you don't have children. What about your neighbors? What about your friends? Even this morning, I spoke to this, as we gathered this morning, as we sang the songs of the redeemed, what were we doing? We were loving God in that moment. We were speaking to those around us. Yes, the Lord is trustworthy, the Lord is good. That's Sunday morning what about Friday afternoon what about Saturday at 9 o'clock at night what are you teaching your children what are you teaching those around you what are you demonstrating with your actions by the way I don't mention that to condemn or convict although the Lord will use that I mention that to say this use it as a test in your own life where's my heart at these are the things that I've said these are the things that I've done these are the things that I've not done asking the Lord to work in your heart, because we'll end here this morning, but I'll go ahead and share this with you. The end of Deuteronomy, Moses says, God, I know that they're going to disobey you. People, you're going to disobey God. You're going to experience this. You're going to be exiled and all this, but you're going to turn back to him. And when you do, when you call out to him, he's going to listen to you and he's going to bring you back into the land. He's going to renew his covenant with you. And not only is he going to do that, but he's going to write the law on your heart. He even says he's going to circumcise your heart. In a sense, he'll give you a new one. And so for the Christian here this morning, even for the unbeliever, I want to throw this out there, that you would walk towards the Lord as he is promising hope and offering to give new hearts. So we love God with every part of our being. So let me ask you this. Do you struggle to love the Lord with every fiber of your being? Do you struggle with that? We don't have to raise our hands. I'll be the first, if we were, though, to say that I struggle to truly love the Lord with every every ounce of my being. You might be asking, even in that question, how do you love the Lord? How do you control your love? Many of, many of you might be thinking like me, aren't you supposed to just follow your heart? Aren't you just supposed to do whatever your heart wants? Right? Isn't that what Disney has taught us? Follow your heart. Let your conscience be your guide. Whatever you want to do, do that. Let's just do what we want. Love what we want to love. We say we can't even control it, right? I'm going to tell you this this morning. The Bible doesn't teach that. And incidentally, we don't experience that in life. Listen, love is a choice. Love is a choice that you will choose. You'll choose to do it or you'll choose not to. We think about a marriage as a man and a woman. They stand at their altar. They stand in before God, in the presence of their family and friends. And as they stand there, they promise to one another in their vows, and it's a beautiful thing. I love you, no matter what. I'm choosing that on your marriage day, on your wedding day. That it's not often tested. What you say is spoken, it's made known to others, but it's not tested on that day. And oftentimes our vows include things like this, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health. In the good and in the bad, doesn't matter, I'm, I love you. We vow to one another and we say, I'm choosing you, I'm choosing to love you. So often in our marriages, those vows are tested. Not, oftentimes not intentionally. It's as if the other is saying, will they truly choose to love me in this situation? If in this situation, if I did this, will they continue to love me? If the business does well, the wife says, I- I'll love you. And she says also, and it's beautiful, if we lose everything, I'll love you. I'll be here with you. And that's a beautiful thing. And what we see there, that is, it's actually a choice. We don't have to follow our heart. We don't have to do whatever our uh, flighty hearts decide that they want to do, to be uncommitted or to be committed. God is saying to us, he's calling out to us to commit to him, to choose to love him with devotion. And the bar is set high, but he calls us to it, to love, us with, to love him with every part of us. While Moses was concerned about the present generation and their, uh, their willingness to listen to, to and love God, he's also declaring his concern the next generation not teach or be taught. He's concerned for the unborn. He's concerned for posterity. Will they also know the truths of God? Will they hear them? Will they obey them? Will they love God? Will they be taught and will they teach? He's concerned with this as well. Moses, he's saying this has got to be passed on to other generations. You've got to hear the Lord and you've got to love the Lord. And he also says you've got to teach You've got to teach. And the, the Hebrew word here is it means to instill by persistent instruction. It, it involves training. It gives the idea of shaping. And it takes time, faithfulness. Imagine the, the painstaking process of carving a statue made of stone or granite or marble. Imagine how long it would take to do that. I don't have the patience for that. It takes faithful, steady, chipping away over months and months and weeks and weeks and years even. Up to the end result, though, You begin to see what it looks like. You begin to see the finished product, how strong it will be. You'll stand the test of time when you see that finished product. You realize that it's worth it all. And this is what Moses has in mind faithful teaching of the children, catechizing the children in the sense that on a daily basis, teaching their children. I want to offer this to you, by the way, that we are always teaching. We're always teaching. Whether you're a parent, a grandparent, a single person, you're always teaching. You're always speaking something. You're always pointing to what you believe to be true. And Moses is saying, if you believe that these things are true, if you'll obey them, if you'll love them, and then also teach them, things are going to go well. In verse 6, he, he says this, and these, are the, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise and you shall bind them as a sign on your hands and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorpost of your heart and on your gates. Moses is saying, you've got to educate your sons and you've got to teach them how to educate their sons. You've got to teach them the detail and structure of the covenant so that it's not forgotten. And so today... As a church, I want to, this same truth is for us. We're commanded to teach our children. When you say, well, I don't have any children. We're commanded to teach our children, each other, as a, as a tribe in a sense, as a family of God. We're commanded to teach one another and to teach our children. But I want to challenge you with this. You can't teach what you don't know. Before we get to this area, you say, I, I, I want to I do it. I want to teach. I want to be a part of this. We're going to see in just a moment you can't get these things out of order. We can't begin to teach if we, don't have, if we haven't already heard. We can't begin to teach if we don't truly love because we can't take somewhere somebody somewhere we have never been. We can't give what we don't have. So this morning, if that's you and you say, I, I I want to teach. I want to fulfill this command to teach with my life. And I would encourage you to consider, you can't lead where you've never been. Are you where you need to be? I don't mean to say to set the bar, but I mean to say this, are you hearing the word of God? And are you loving God? One of the most difficult things for me to learn is it's, I can't take people places I've never been. As much as I desire to do that, I can't take them somewhere I'm not. As a leader, I don't, as a teacher, as a tutor, I don't have to know everything, but I have to be at least one step ahead, don't I? I have to at least be the, the first one to walk through the door. As parents here, and Moses is commanding them, hey, to do this, to teach your children, they've got, to be, they've got to already be there and know what they're teaching. It's the command to have the law on your heart, by the way fulfills that, to have that law on your heart. Remember, the heart is not your feelings, but it's the logical, rational part of you. It's the, 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 the part of your body that thinks, that meditates. So we're to meditate. We're to chew on his commands. And as we do, we will learn more. As we do, we'll grow in our faith. As we meditate on the words of God, our understanding will expand. Our, our own holiness will increase as we draw closer to God. It's vital that these words, that this, these commands be on our hearts. That you ponder them, that you maul around them They become familiar to you. Because you can't teach what you don't know. And yet we're called to teach the next generation. In a practical sense, I want to just ask you this question. We're commanded as Christians to, to share the Great Commission, to share the gospel, to go and to, to share the good news. A great example of that, of this truth here, not, not being able to lead where you've never been, is if you don't know the gospel, how can, you, how can you take somebody to the gospel? If you've never experienced the grace of God, how difficult would it be to extend and to demonstrate that? So God calls us to know and to teach. Think of Psalm 78 that Bill read just a few moments ago. Verse 4 says, we will not hide them, the statutes, the commands. We won't hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation. Think about the context there. The old generation that rebelled against God, they were gone. They died in the wilderness. They never got to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. They weren't there. Moses says, we're not going to do this again. We're not going to hide the commandments. Parents, step up, he says. Leaders, step up. Tell the coming generation. What are we going to tell them? Verse 4, he says, the the glorious deeds. Verse 5, we're going to tell them our testimony. The testimony that God gave to Jacob. We're going to tell them the law that God gave at Sinai. Which he, by the way, commanded that they teach their children. Verse 6, it says, that the next generation might know them. That the next generation might know the glorious deeds. That the next generation might know the testimony. That the next, next generation might know the law. As you think about this, the glorious deeds and the law and the testimony of God, consider this. As a parent, as a, as a husband, as a, as a fiance, when, when's the last time that you told or conveyed your personal testimony to your children, to your spouse, to your fiance? When's the last time that the conversation that you took, that, you, that took place with your significant other, that it turned to this? I want to tell you about the glorious deeds of God and what he has done in my life. When's the last time that took place? When's the last time you, you shared the testimony of the law? Maybe something that God had been showing you in your own life. I going to encourage you, by the way. This might seem a little bit foreign. Sarah and I, when Sarah and I got married, we, I, I was studying to be a pastor. This was one of the most difficult things for me. To, sh- to be serious, I don't know why, but to be honest and real about my walk with Christ, with her. It was so difficult. I'd love to say that I'm past that and I lead so well spiritually. Unfortunately, that's not the case. I've got room to grow. This is something that God's called us to, to share the glorious deeds with our spouse, with our loved ones, with our children, to share that testimony and that law. Verse verse 7, it says, so that they should set their hope in God. Why do we do this? Why do we... Why do we tell our children, why do we tell our spouse, why do we tell our neighbors of the testimony and the law and the glorious deeds that God has done? Because we want them to set their hope in God. And I think that you would agree with me this morning. But that is our only hope. All we have is Christ. The only hope that we have in this world is in Christ. So this is a beautiful passage. What do we do with that, though? How, how do we... Not hide these truths from our children, but how do we intentionally share them with the coming generation? And and how do fathers fulfill the command to teach their own children as this passage teaches? How do we do that? I think this might be a good time to tell you a little bit about HubTown Kids. The the vision statement uh, for HubTown Kids is this, people helping parents. So for Hagerstown Church, we say people helping people find and follow Jesus. We want to be a people. That's who we want to be. We want to be a people that help people find and follow Jesus. And Huttown Kids, what's theirs? Well, we want to be a people helping parents. And, and what, I, what we mean by that is we realize the role of the church is not to take children and to raise them to know and love Jesus. If you're a parent here this morning, that God, God has given you those children so that you will teach them to know and to love him. He's given you your children to teach them. And that's not a heavy role. While it's it's difficult, it's challenging, it's also a glory. What better job could you be given than to herald the good news, the hope of God to your children, to those whom you love? It's your job to do that. And we as a church, we as Hubtown kids, we want to help you in that. What takes place here on Sunday should be supplemental and support what you're teaching your kids so if you, send your kids, parents, if you send your kids to the yellow station or to the blue station, and sometime soon we'll open up the gray station, Lord willing. If you send your kids that, that's great. That's there for you. But do not, please do not think that that's now, that, that responsibility has been shifted and that we've taken that from you because it's not, we can't. God's not given that to me. He's not given that to Brad. He's not given that to, he's given that to the parents. And that's his design So I want to encourage you, be a part of Hubtown Kids. If you're a worker, we need you. We thank God for you sacrificing and be a part of that. If you're a parent that takes advantage of Hubtown Kids, we thank God for that too. But we want to encourage you to realize that you are not, you cannot just give that responsibility up. but we're here to help you. And even as we grow and expand, as Hubtown Kids continues to, 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 to learn more about our DNA and who we are as a church, we'll be finding even better ways To assist you as a parent and to come alongside and support what God is using you to do in the life of your children. One of the things that we think about uh, that's related to this as as we consider shaping the next generation is that you may not feel equipped to do that. You you may not feel like you have the tools that you need. I know from time to time I've, I've felt that myself. I want to encourage you, in order to serve the Lord, in order to teach our children, we don't have to have a, some kind of a degree in biblical languages or biblical studies, or you don't have to have, have even been, become a member at Hagerstown Church, though we think that that's a great thing, that you should work towards that. But what you need is to, to hear the Lord's words. You need to obey them. You need to love the Lord, and you need to teach your children. Perhaps you're thinking, maybe it's too late. I've dropped the ball, and I would encourage you this morning that it's never too late. It's okay to not be okay, it's, it's been said, but it's not okay to stay there. So, this morning, if the Lord, through His word this morning, is challenging you and encouraging you, and you feel like maybe you've dropped the ball, you've made mistakes, I want to encourage you. The Lord is gracious, the Lord is merciful, and the Lord is willing and desires to work in and through you. So, this morning, I want to just give you two practical things. If you're struggling right now to think, how can I truly lead my children? How can I teach my children? How can I love my wife and lead her spiritually? I'm going to offer just a few things. The first is this. i want going to encourage you to embrace the family here at Hagerstown Church. i want to embrace you to lean in and to become known. We say this a lot. We want you to be known and we want you to know us. One of the things that God has called the church to do is to hold each other accountable and to encourage one another and to spur one another along through the word of God, applying it to each other's lives. And so as you come here this morning and you say, I I need help in this. I need to know how to lead my family. I need to to know how how to pray with my wife. I've never seen that done. Seek somebody out here in this body, in this faith family, and ask, hey, can you help me in that? That's what God has given us the church for, to encourage one another. Another practical resource that I just want to throw out there to you is Family Worship. It's a little, tiny little book by Donald Whitney. It's a super helpful book, has 60 pages or less, and it will, is packed with great information and practical tips on how fathers can lead their families, on how marriages can be stronger as a result of the family worship, as a result of spending time in prayer. It's a great book, Family Worship, Donald Whitney. I, I encourage you to be a part of that. One of the dangers here, though, is as we consider What needs to be done, what God has called us to, is being overwhelmed and then not doing it at all. We're not realizing that the actions that we take in action is actually action. We are speaking with everything that we do. I want to tell you a story uh, quickly about a young man, very, very very familiar to me. His father would always encourage him to read the Bible, to go to church, to pray. Always encourage him to do right, to follow the law. And yet, this young man began to see in his own father's life that none of those things were ever fulfilled. He never saw his father read the Bible. He never saw his father go to church. He never saw his father pray. He never saw his father's eyes well up with tears as he considered his own sin and asked for forgiveness. He never saw that. The young man began to think what's going on? What's the disconnect here? Is it possible that my father, this, this father, is, is pushing his child, to do these things because of behavior modification. And in, and in truth, he doesn't believe any of these things. That, that that was me. I remember thinking that of my own father, that he claimed to be a Christian, and yet at the same time, he wasn't doing the very things that he would call me to do. And I remember at the, at the age of 17, be, beginning to think, maybe, maybe God's not real. Maybe this isn't true. I, I didn't think I had much respect for my father, but there was so much power even in the fact that he... Was my father. So I even began to doubt the very existence of God because of the action or inaction in his life. I, I, I throw that out there to encourage you, parents, fathers, brothers, sisters, just as people hear you sing or don't hear you sing, they see your life as well. And they observe the things that you do or the things that you don't do. So you might say, well, I, it's too late for me. It's never too late. It's never too late. To demonstrate a genuine faith in God. A, de- a genuine love for God. And to begin to teach. So ask yourself this, this question. Am I, am I a part of shaping the next generation for good or for bad? Am I encouraging folks to, to place their faith in God? Or am I discouraging folks from placing their faith in God? Be it my children, my spouse, whoever it is. Think of Ephesians chapter Five says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Are you doing this? Husband, are you doing that? Are you washing your wife with the word? What does it look like to do that? What does it look like to wash your bride? Let me ask you this. When was the last time, husband, when was the last time that you prayed with your wife? This is a difficult thing. I don't say this as if I'm bragging, as if God has brought and done some crazy work in my life. Look at me. I don't say that. I say, look at Christ. That's what this passage says. Look at Christ. What has he done for us? He's washed his bride with the water of the word. so, So husbands, this morning, I want to challenge you to do that, to wash your wife with the word. Decide today that you're going to begin to lead your family in prayer, not just at the dinner table. Well, that's good. It's well, that's great. Teach your children to thank God for their food. But lead your wife spiritually. God calls us to that. Young man, I want you, I'm going to encourage you to determine this morning that you will, from the earliest stages of your marriage, from the earliest stages of your relationship with your fiancé, that you will commit to pray and lead as God has called you to do. Commit today. Write it in your Bible Tell somebody. Get it tattooed on your arm. You're going, to lead your, you're going to lead your family. You're going to do what's right. Young ladies, I, you could tell a great deal about a man by the way that he prays or the fact that he doesn't pray. And so consider that. If Prince Charming doesn't pray with you now, if he doesn't lead you spiritually now, will he then, when you are married, will he do it then? And this isn't time saying, hey, break it off if, that doesn't, if it's not taking place. But encourage him. Lead me Spiritually. I'll say this it doesn't get any easier once you become married. It's quite the opposite, it becomes more difficult. So, young lady, commit today, make the decision that you won't go down that path. Determine that you will wait for God to provide for you a husband who will lead you faithfully in the worship of the Lord. Commit to that this morning. In the very next chapter of Ephesians, we read this. Uh, Fathers, don't provoke your, your children to anger, but bring them up in, this, in, the, in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So again, I ask in, in light of that, when are you doing that? When, when are you bringing your children up in the, in, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? This is a heavy, heavy question for, for me to ask you. As this has been weighing on me all week. Concern for you as a body, but then concern for my own children. Concern for me. As God has placed this on me. And training our children in the, in the things of God, they're far too important to, to leave that up to a chance and the unintentional, just hoping that they'll pick up enough of the things of God through, through Hubtown Kids or through time here in the service on Fifth Family Sundays and things like that. You just hope that they'll gather it up. They'll rub shoulders with some Christian kid at school and they'll band together and join FCA and it'll be all great. We hope for that. And while those things are good and those things are well, we cannot just leave this task, this this responsibility of bringing our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord to chance. So this morning, again, I want to ask you, when does that take place? When does that take place in the life of your family I want to mention this, I I think it's worth going here. As a young church with a growing membership, expanding God's blessing, we'll eventually come to the point where we as a body are looking for God to supply more elders to help lead and guide this church, to serve as under-shepherds in this church. And I want to ask you, church, I I want to encourage you to begin thinking about this. Who should we be looking for? As a a church, as as a body, who should we be looking for? Paul has very clearly, the scriptures have very clearly told us in Titus and both in Timothy, Gives us the, the qualifications for an elder. And one of those qualifications that, that is given is that they're to lead, they're to, they're, they're to rule their own family well. And there's quite a bit that's in there that we could unpack from there. But Paul asks this question. He says, How can someone lead the house of God if they can't even lead their own house? How can somebody lead the house of God if they can't lead their own house? And there's a lot of things that we could put onto that text and say, well, this is what it's saying, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to lay things on there, but I I do want to say this this morning. One of the chief things that an elder is required of God to do is lead the family, lead the body spiritually. So as we consider in the future of who, who God would provide for us to continue to guide and to shepherd this body, we need to be considering this. Does the person that we consider Are they leading their family spiritually? Paul asks a a great question. How can they lead? Are are they equipped? Do they they hear and obey? Do they love God? If they don't, then how can they teach? And if they don't teach their own family, how can they teach the body of Christ? I say that, and as I say that, I think, is my job secure? Right? Uh, But but that's not my concern. My concern is not to protect myself, but to be true to the Word of God. So I lay that out there before you and call you guys to that, to hold your elders accountable to that, and to not uh, admit any elder to the table that is not leading their family spiritually. We'll move on. What are we to do about this, though? Fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, fiancés, this is a heavy task that God has called us to. There's so much at stake. And so what, what do we do? How do we, what, what, how do we get started? What does this look like? I'm going to throw three, three things out at you this morning. Family worship. Spiritually leading your family in your home is, is, has three components. It, it can have more, but it has to have at least three. And they are this. Reading the Bible, praying, and singing. Reading the Bible praying, and singing for thousands of years. Listen, for thousands of years, Christian families have gathered together on a daily, regular basis, and then they've done these three simple things. It doesn't take a master's degree again. It doesn't take take a doctorate. It doesn't take years and years of whatever. It doesn't take a Logos Bible software package. Read, pray, and sing. That's what God calls us to. Again, that's what the church has done for thousands of years. So let me ask you this question. Would people in Hagerstown find and follow Jesus? Would your children love Jesus? Do you desire that they follow the Great Commission and work for his kingdom and find hope in Christ? Do you desire that? Then teach them to worship with you while they're in your home. Let them hear your prayers. Let them see the tears stream down over your trembling lips. Let them see that you love the Lord as they walk with you, as you obey the commands of the Lord. A beautiful thing. I'll encourage you with it. There's there's no way, there's no control that you have over the salvation of your children. You can't change your heart. If, if, a man's, if, if, if a child's heart is against the Lord, you can't change it. You can do what you want, but you can't change it. Only God can. But I will say this. We see it time and time again, and God calls us to this. That he uses the ordinary means of even family worship, of fathers and mothers faithfully teaching, loving, and hearing the commandments of the Lord. He uses it. And that's that mystery that belongs to the Lord, but we can't control it. He does use that as a means. Think of Samuel Davies, one of America's greatest preachers. He lived in the 18th century. He once said this. This is a fantastic quote. If you love your children, if you would bring down the blessing of heaven upon your families, if you would have, if you would have your children make their houses, the receptacles of religion when they set up in life for themselves, if you would have religion survive in this place and be conveyed from age to age, if you would deliver your own souls, I beseech, I entreat, I charge you, to begin and continue the worship of God in your lives. Consider family religion not merely, listen to this, consider family religion not merely as a duty imposed by authority, but as your greatest privilege granted by divine grace. Consider family religion not merely as a duty imposed by authority, but as your greatest privilege granted by divine grace. Listen, there's a higher calling than what we've experienced. The children of Israel, the generation that didn't enter into the land, there was a higher calling than that. But I'll say this, there's no higher calling than teaching your children to know and love Jesus. And if you know of one, tell me. I want to echo Mr. Davies. If you've neglected to do this, if it's not been a part of your life, Don't delay. What does he say? Start. Begin. Start now. If you have begun, if this has been a part of your worship, a part of your family in the past, begin again and continue. Again, I want to challenge you. It's okay. We say this a lot here. We're all in process. There's nobody here that's arrived. If you're looking for a church to settle in as the third person to arrive or whatever, this is the wrong place. Nobody here has arrived. We say it often, we are all in process. God is working and sanctifying us all. And as we walk together, arm in arm, hand in hand, looking at the word of God and and it is our guide, we come to the place where we say, this is our divine privilege to lead our families. If you don't know where to begin, ask for help. So here Love and teach. The relationship between these three is interesting in the sense I alluded to this earlier but you can't have only one or two but you must have all three in order for it to be effective in order for the promises of God to truly begin to work in here as He's promised. And they have to be in order. If you think about it if you had the teaching and you didn't have the love What would that be? If you had the teaching but you didn't have the love, it would become legalism. Perhaps you've experienced that in your own life. Many denominations, many even cults are are, are stuck in this. Teaching without loving. What if you had loving without hearing? What if you had the loving but you didn't actually have the hearing? The hearing is the obedience part. You love the Lord or you, you claim to love the Lord. You claim to love the law of the Lord. There wasn't any obedience. There wasn't any hearing. Well, what do you have there? It's vanity and rebellion. It's not the truth. It's not pure religion at all. It's no religion at all. It's rebellion against the Lord. What if you had hearing without loving? What if you obeyed, but you didn't love? Well, what is that? What's well, hypocrisy? This is what the, the children of Israel, this was, this was their main struggle to have the obedience, to have the hearing down without the loving. And time again, the Lord would send a prophet and say, you're, you're obeying me, you're doing what I said, but your heart is far from me and I hate it. I hate it. It's hypocrisy. What if you had loving without teaching? You truly love the Lord, but there was no teaching, it didn't go forward. Well, that loving actually becomes and manifests itself as hatred. Truly it becomes hatred that you you would love the Lord and that you would experience, as Psalm 78 says, this hope in God, but then you wouldn't teach it to your children. You wouldn't pass it on. Well, what is it? It's hatred. The Bible says if you spare what is good from somebody else, it's a demonstration of hatred itself. So you must have all three. This is the law of God. Moses' concern is that the future generation would pass on an incomplete religion. And it's my fear as well. Us here at Hagerstown Church, when we're all gone, in 50, 60 years, when, when folks come into this church and they tell stories about the good old days and they talk about all the, 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 the strife that we stirred up and the, and the things that we started that they don't like anymore and the kind of music that we sing that they're done with, when all that's taken place, truly, what will be left? Will the religion that we pass on, will it be complete or will it be incomplete? Will it look more like legalism, rebellion, hypocrisy, or even hatred? Well, look, on the burden is on us. God has given us these commands and we're to to follow them. So may our children, may the next generation of Hagerstown Church, may they not be tied up in rebellion or hypocrisy. May they enjoy the hearing, the loving, and the teaching as they teach their children what they were taught by us. May we work to that end. As we draw to our close, I want to just bring to your attention um, something interesting. It's this. The level of love for God should match the level of meditation and teaching. The level of love for God should match the meditation and the teaching. Okay? And so the the love that we are called to is comprehensive. It's with all of our being, all of our soul, all of our heart, all of our might. God calls us to that. It's comprehensive. And then he goes on to say: in the same with teaching and with meditation, he says the same thing. It's all inclusive. He says, whether you're sitting or whether you're walking, at the start of your day or at the end of your day or wherever you find yourself at, meditate and teach. It should be on your mind. It's a good place for it. What about here? Is this a good place? Yes, that's a good place. What about at this time? Yes, that's a great time to teach your children. That's a great time to meditate on the Lord. And basically he's saying in all levels of activity, in all times of the day and in every location, you should be meditating on and teaching of me. And I can hear you thinking, uh, is that even possible? Is that a little excessive, that God would require that of of us? Maybe you weren't thinking that, I was thinking that. This week I thought that myself. Is is that even possible, God? This is too much. And while this is impossible, truly it is, and only through the power of God working in our lives is it possible. At the same time, I want to ask you to consider other things in your life. I I, I have no desire to share with you every time that I've been infatuated or consumed with something to this degree other than God. I don't want to share that with you this morning. Perhaps it would be helpful. I do know that there are things like diets, tools, collectibles, news, relationships, boyfriends, girlfriends, hurts, hang-ups, politics, video games, the latest tech, whatever it is. These are some of the things that consume us. That we think of all the time. We think of it when we wake up. We think of it when we go to bed. We think of it as we we brush our teeth. We think of it as we eat. We we think of it everywhere we go. Every location. And whether it's inactive or active. We're thinking of these things. They consume us so often. If you're like me as you consider your own heart. And you consider the truth that this is me. That's me. I, I get so infatuated and consumed with things that don't matter. Doesn't well, We need the work of God in our lives to get us to this point. We also see that it, it's possible to be consumed for the things of God. It really is possible for every ounce of our fiber to be pointed towards the Lord and His glory. So Israel, they found themselves in the same boat time and time again. They had focused on something other than what they had been called to focus on. Time and time again it would take place. Their options were set before them. Moses puts it out there. He forces the people to choose toward the end of the book of Deuteronomy. He says, blessings or cursing, life or death, uh, this junk that you're infatuated with or the Lord himself. And he challenges them to choose life. He challenges them with all these other things that we've talked about. And he knows this. He knows them well enough. Under the inspiration of God, the Spirit, he says, I know that you're eventually going to fall away. I know that you won't keep this up. He prophesies that, that one day they're going to be completely removed from the land. As I spoke about at the, at the beginning of the sermon, he, he not only sees that they're going to be removed, but that at one point in their, uh, in their time away that they will repent and they'll turn back to the Lord. And he says of that time that God would renew the covenant with them. He would circumcise their hearts. He would give them, a, in a sense, a new heart. That had the ability to love him with all of their hearts. Maybe you're there this morning and you said, That sounds great. That's what I want. The offer is there for you as well. The offer extended to Moses and the children of through Moses, to the children of Israel, was if, if they repent of their sins, if they'll trust God, that he will give them a new heart. Jeremiah, the prophet, picks up on this same. Theme The same idea, under the inspiration of the Spirit, again, in verse 33 of chapter 31. It says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, not on tablets that can be broken. He'll write it on their hearts. and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Church, that is, that's available for us this morning. As we close, I want to challenge you to hear, to love, and to teach. And At the same time, I want to encourage you with this. That we're not made right by practicing family worship. We're not. God doesn't love us husbands because we lead our wives spiritually and we care for them. We pray with them. That's not why God loves us. Nor is it because we, uh, do, we do family worship. None of these things, as a matter of fact, any attempt to earn God's favor or to increase your standing with God is the anti-gospel. Is not good news at all. It's quite the opposite. The gospel says that Jesus has already done everything that's necessary for your salvation. says The gospel says that only he can make what's been wrong right. So this morning, if you feel crushed by the weight of what God is calling you to, perhaps that's a good thing. Because only God can do what he said here. Only God can make these things possible. Only God can give you a new heart that would love him wholly and with every fiber. What's interesting here is in 1 John 4, the Bible teaches us that, that if you love God, if you're here this morning and you say, that, That's me, I, I, I've actually come to the point where I can hear and I can love and I can teach. The Bible says in, in John, 1 John chapter 4 that all that is because he loved you first. So, what a great place to rest this morning, to celebrate this Sunday, this Lord's Day, that he, we love him because he first loves us. So, God loves us, and in turn, we love him. Church, God deserves to be worshipped here in this place. He deserves to be worshipped in our homes. He deserves to be praised and he deserves to be loved. So with those things in mind, hear the words of the Lord. Love the Lord your God and teach your children. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for these truths that we've looked at this morning. And these challenges. God, we see that in comparison and in contrast to the way of the world, to the way that it was in Egypt, that this is such a beautiful thing that you're calling us to. You're calling us to faithfulness. You're calling us to one God instead of many. You're calling us to a God that is unified and not separate and not confusing. We thank you for that truth. And yet as we try to approach you even now this morning, as we try to do the things that you've called us to do, we realize that we can't do it in our own power. So we rest there this morning. Asking you to work in our lives. Asking you to give us the strength. Asking you to increase our faith. Asking you to increase our love. Asking you to increase our knowledge. And we know that the means that you will do that through is through your word. And so we lean on that. Today we, learn on, we lean on that throughout this week. We pray that you give us the strength to do that. And Jesus, we thank you for the truth that no matter what we face, no matter where we've been in the past, no matter what's ahead, as we strive to fulfill these things that you will come to our aid. You are able to do these things when we are not. and That's the hope that we need this morning. We thank you for that. We ask that you bless us as we go. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone.